Hello, everyone. My name is Fiona Marks, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to the Vedic Astrology Podcast. I am a Vedic astrologer. I'm a graduate of the Asheville Vedic Astrology Apprenticeship Program. I'm the host of the monthly Astrology Jam of 10 astrologers getting together and discussing one chart. And I am a tutor on the teachable.com Asheville Vedic Astrology Apprenticeship Program. And today I am here giving birth to the Vedic Astrology Podcast. It's an enormous field. I hope we get to share many episodes together. In my mind, I, I see five really clear topic areas that I'd like to cover. Uh, number one, I want to talk about what is Vedic astrology. I'd love also in topic area two to talk about how does astrology work. And a third topic area I'd like to cover is really getting into the knowledge and techniques. And maybe that's will become the main body of content for this podcast. But I'd also love to interview other astrologers, hear their stories of what attracted them to astrology, what amazes them about astrology, what keeps them going. And of course, a fifth topic area would be case studies where we can bring together all of these different layers of insight from Vedic astrology into a working case study and really showcase what Vedic astrology can do. So I hope that you will join me through these many episodes. This is obviously a new initiative. It's a great time to participate. So as you listen to these episodes, if it brings up ideas for you, things that you'd love to hear more about or things you'd like to contribute, please let me know. I look forward to a growing community of contributions to this Vedic Astrology podcast. So as today is the very first episode, it's natural that we address that topic number one, what is Vedic Astrology? And this is a big question. Literally going to cover thousands of years of human thinking. So right here at the beginning of our conversation today, I'm just going to ask for forgiveness as I make my best efforts to honor my teachers and share this enormous story of humanity, knowing that no one person, no one podcast could ever do justice to this question, while at the same time, no podcast entitled The Vedic Astrology Podcast could ever begin without attempting to address this topic. Today, we're going to be looking at time and space. We're going to take detours into Babylonian mathematics, the development of the calendar, the way the earth is tilted. I'm going to remind you of your high school astronomy and we're going to look at natal astrology, electional astrology, prajna, nakshatras, mundane astrology, and more. It's huge. I hope you will join me. Let's get started. Why don't we begin in answering this question, what is Vedic astrology, by looking at the etymology of these words. We've got Vedic and we've got astrology. What, what can we really unpack from this first word Vedic? It's beautiful that this is the name that has come about because it ties this style of astrology to the Vedas, these ancient works that are the foundation of an integrated body of knowledge that is thousands of years old, that is continuously being practiced, and 
the Vedas explain the journey of consciousness into matter in an seamless, integrated way. They include this enormous body of knowledge and practice all the way from what you and I might associate with the Vedas. Perhaps you've been exposed to yoga, perhaps to Ayurveda, to Vedic maths, Vedic mathematics, or to Vashtu, that way of organizing space. And perhaps you've even been exposed to Vedic astrology and so much more. This integrated field of knowledge where daily practices of yoga are just as important and integrated as the mapping of the cosmos, as the understanding of health and nutrition and the processes that are going on in the body and more and more and more all together in a way that was entirely connected. So Vedic astrology forms one of these fields within the integrated knowledge of the Vedas. And although we think of it as Vedic astrology, it's actually quite a new, newly coined term, perhaps even as recent as the 1970s, when the popularization of yoga and Ayurveda was really coming to the West. The term that came about for this style of astrology was Vedic astrology. It could easily have been Hindu astrology. It could have been Indian astrology. And maybe we'll never know why that term was given. What is beautiful about it is the way it ties it back to this whole field that it's integrated with. In India, it's referred to as Jyotish, meaning the study of light or the eye of the Veda. So that was a word that could have come through as well. The beauty of linking it with Vedic means that it links it to the framework where the same phenomena have meaning in all the branches. For example, those Ayurvedic mind-body types that you may have been exposed to, like Vata, Pitta and Kapha, they're present in yoga and they're present in astrology. They mean the same things and they we share the same understanding about those things. And for example, the same is true with elements like fire, space, air earth and water, they're present in astrology, they're present in Ayurveda, they're present in yoga, they're present in Vastu. This is a where the fundamental building blocks and concepts are all integrated inside the Vedas. It's a consistent body of knowledge. So that tells us a little bit about what is Vedic. It definitely place marks this style of astrology within the school of all other Vedic knowledge and science. And that leaves us the chance now to explore the the other part of that word, what is astrology? This is also a very big area of human thinking over thousands and thousands of years. It really shares its foundation with that very human experience of looking up at the night sky. I don't know that there's anyone who hasn't laying on their back at some point in childhood, looked up at the stars and just been in wonder at the theatre of play that is taking place with all these bright points of light in an impenetrably dark sky. This is a cross-cultural practice. Humans all over the world, all over history, have looked up at the sky, they've observed phenomena, they've noticed patterns, they've made meaning. And this very human act of looking up at the stars really brings into the human mind 
you know, what is my place in the universe? What is our place in the universe? Where, what is the role of Earth in this enormous cosmos? And not only that, as if that question wasn't big enough, we've got some really practical questions as well as we look up at the sky. Can it help us as humans measure time and distance? We really can't answer the question, what is astrology, without referencing this mammoth journey humans have taken in trying to measure time. And remember that in ancient cultures, just like we've spoken about Vedas and Vedic thought at the beginning of this podcast, it is in the traditional world, it was the norm that astrology, astronomy, maths, medicine, these were all integrated in traditional cultures. So as we're trying to measure time, whereas today we get out the smartphone and it's got everything on there, the GPS, it's got the what date it is, it's got what time it is. And we may think of measuring time now, we would go to a very specific field of science to understand that. But in traditional cultures, in ancient times, astrology and astronomy as they're integrated in other fields like mathematics and medicine, of course, they're going to be very important to answering that question because how can you measure time when you're always moving? We're on a rock hurtling around, you know, a hydrogen explosion. It's, it, everything's in motion where every day we're, we're rotating around our axis and we're moving forward in our orbit. You're always spinning and moving. How do you measure time? And on top of that, how do you measure distance? Because humans are traveling for sources of food that become available at different times of the year. Also, other mammals and birds are migrating as well. Distance is an important thing. How do you measure distance when you lose your reference points? So is there a way for us to use these stars that seem so far away and almost stationary? Can we anchor all of our movement to something there in space? And maybe this is a a great place for us to take a short tangent in answering the question, what is astrology? We really need to have a little nod here to how difficult it is to develop a calendar. The truth is a day is a day. All beings are very comfortable with the sun going up, the sun going down, and the next time the sun comes up, that's a day. So it's an experience that's very visceral, very real, very observable. There's no doubt that there are days. There's also there's also months because we have this moon going around. It's very easy to see the moon moving through a period of time. So we certainly see the passage of time through the changes of the moon. and. We know for sure that we go around the sun, you know, once every orbit. That's just exactly what happens. So these things exist. But how do you impose a structure on that in such a way that you can administer life? You think of all the things that we do now. We've been doing these for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and sadly thousands of years, like like paying taxes or rent or doing the census. All of these things have been going on for such a long time. And you think of how various cultures have administered empires. We need to know that we're all going to show up at the same time, that we're all going to pay the same amount. 
So these questions become very important around calendars. And from the Babylonians to 1500 BC, we get a mathematics that's structured around 60, a base of 60. You and I probably think of maths being based around 10. That's the decimal system. But this ancient approach to mathematics was based on 60. For example, from that we get 60 seconds, we get 60 minutes, and we get 360 degrees. If you stand in one spot and you turn all the way around and you watch what you can see as you spin around, that is 360 degrees. Obviously, these are arbitrary divisions. Someone has to make them. And way back, perhaps 2500 BC, we get this idea that second 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, and 360 degrees in a rotation. The beauty of using this base of 60 is that it's divisible by so many numbers like 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 10, 12, 15, 20, 30. You can see that it's got lots of easily dividable into whole numbers. And if you think about 360 degrees, that's even more divisible. And it's beautiful. I don't know, maybe this comes from the Babylonians, comes from this ancient time, is that if you count the knuckles on one hand, and we're just talking here about the fingers, we've got three knuckles on each finger. And four fingers. So taking out the thumb, just got those four fingers, each with three knuckles, gives us on that hand 12, if you count each of those knuckles, 12 knuckles. And then as you hold up one thumb on the other hand, and then your forefinger, and then your middle finger, then the fourth finger, and finally the little finger, you've got five. So you can count five lots of 12 from those knuckles, and you get yourself to 60. So you can see how this base of 60 allowed us to have calculator here on the hands. And as a former massage therapist, I'm always a fan of integrating our knowledge, our philosophies with the the wisdom in the body. So big fan of this base of 60 mathematical system. So from their amazing insights into maths, we get this idea of 60 and also of 360. What we notice is that our annual rotation of the sun is very close to 360 days. So conceptually, we've got the basis of a calendar here. And from this pure mathematical approach, this beautiful, pristine mathematical approach, can we impose that structure on reality and make a calendar? You and I probably are pretty comfortable that the Earth's rotation of the sun is around 364 and one quarter days. And that is actually within 1% of 360. So it's very close. Then we've got the moon's rotation of the earth. It's in between 27 and 29 days. That's because it takes 27 days to rotate. But then we've already moved on. The earth has been orbiting while that's happened. So it takes it just a little over two days to, to catch up with where the earth was before from the last rotation. So if we think about how do we fit this nicely in between 27, 29 days, well, doesn't that jump out as nearly 30 days? That's within 3% of 30 days. And there are 12 beautiful 30 divisions in 360. So to keep it all mathematical, and if we wanted to impose perfect maths on an imperfect system, We're looking at 360 days with 12 months. And that's so close to what our calendar is actually like now. 
obviously every culture that's conquered each other and influenced each other, this has morphed over time. Even if you right now go have a look on timeanddate.com or one of those calendars and you have a look back to the year 1752 in the UK and the US, that is where the calendar had gotten so out of alignment because of being close enough but not quite a reflection of reality that in 1752 the UK and the US had to skip 11 days to get back on track. And if you look that up on your calendar app now um, and check out September, you'll see this big missing gap. Um, Like it goes from the beginning of September and a, a big gap in the middle. And in Portugal, we did that in 1582 by papal decree. And isn't it interesting that it was the church that kind of provoked that the calendar, that Roman calendar, the Julian calendar that had been adapted from the Babylonian idea was just getting out of alignment over time. It was interesting that it's the church that has to decree we need to to get it back in alignment with the actual reflection of of the sun's movement through the year. And for example, Greece didn't do that until 1923. They didn't catch up the calendar. And you might notice that if you've very recently, Prince Philip just passed away and he was born in Greece when it was still the Julian calendar. So he's one of the people that lost some days there, you know, when he caught up during this lifetime. So this is a a sidetrack to let us know that humans have wanted to impose a calendar on the reality of the experience of the days and the years in order to be able to administer all forms of government, all forms that regulate all payments and times when rent is due, all of these practical things that we've always had to deal with. So from a government administration point of view, calendars have always been really important and it's been quite a challenge to match up what's happening in space with how we actually capture that on a calendar. But bringing that back to to astrology, astrology didn't have quite those bounds on it because astrology and, and astronomy are just observing the phenomena. They are unhindered by accounting, bookkeeping, legal contracts, census, all that kind of stuff. They're just trying to observe what is it that's happening in the heavens. So how did astrology and astronomy handle this challenge of creating a clock that accurately represents the Earth's relationship with the solar system? How do you measure time and distance when you're always moving? And let's take ourselves back to that very human experience of lying on the grass looking up at the night sky. In all this chaos of space, would you believe it's actually easy to pick out the path of the sun and the moon and all the other fast-moving heavenly bodies that we call planets. This path is called the ecliptic. And from space, uh, from the perspective of our planet, if we were to just hover somewhere in space, the ecliptic is an orbital plane or disk that within plus or minus seven degrees, all the planets orbit the sun. So it's a very flat disk of the solar system with all of us within the same thin disk of space. That's what it looks like from space. From Earth, it's a narrow band of sky within which all the planets move. Now, because it's an orbit or a rotation, astrology and astronomy can use that Babylonian idea of 360 degrees and describe it perfectly because of exactly what we said. If you stand on the spot and you turn 
around on that spot, that will be 360 degrees. Doesn't matter if it's a circle or a slightly oval shape, it's 360 degrees. And we can divide 360 really easily into 12 pieces. This is for our conceptual months in inverted commas. And suddenly we've discovered a still reference point in the moving universe, and it is our ecliptic. And from that, we can predict exactly where the sun is going to be on the ecliptic. We can predict the moon, and it turns out we can predict all the other planets. In a chaotic universe, we've found predictability. We take it for granted with now with our GPS that we know where we are in space, but we, we know where we are in relation to everything else. But by mapping this ecliptic, we've conquered time and distance because you can see the ecliptic from anywhere on the planet. So now we just need markers for these 12 30-degree divisions, and then we can go anywhere. If from our own village we, were, we use markers for the movement of the sun through the year, these markers are local. For example, where I am, when the sun rises on its longest day of the year, perhaps that rises over a forest. And when the sun rises uh, for the shortest day of the year, it's over a mountain. But as soon as I move, I migrate, I go and um, hunt in another area, or I travel the ocean, the forest and the mountain have no meaning. So I need markers that are non-local. And this is where the constellations that are behind the ecliptic become important because if we think of one of those constellation spaces as being Aries, when the sun is in Aries, that means that constellation of Aries is behind the sun. It doesn't matter whether you're in Portugal or you're in Australia or you're anywhere in between. That is where the sun is from the Earth's perspective. So we have a reference point that allows us to migrate, to move. And you know what's even more brilliant? Not only are these markers non-local, they're non-seasonal. And to understand the significance of that, we have to understand why the sun is high in inverted commas summer and it's low in the sky in winter. And to do that, we're just going to take another tangent to explore the Earth's tilt. Now, this is hopefully taking you back to astronomy in high school, that the Earth is tilted around 23 and a half degrees on the only fixed thing that we have, the ecliptic. That is that our axis that we spin around on, it's not perpendicular to the ecliptic. It's tilted 23 and a half degrees. So as we orbit the sun, sometimes the north pole of the earth is tilted towards the sun and sometimes the south pole is tilted towards the sun during that annual orbit. At one time the north is more tilted towards the sun at another time the south is more tilted towards the sun. From our perspective here on Earth, it looks as if the sun goes up and the sun goes down in the sky during the course of the year. And if you map it from a fixed place every time, the same time every day of the year, it makes a figure eight. This motion of the sun makes a figure eight, which apparently is called an alma. And so the sun's journey through the ecliptic from our perspective, remember, but let's say that the sun's journey through the ecliptic, it's not seasonal, 
it's a loop that's stimulating the North Pole, and then it loops and simulates the South Pole. And the Sun's figure eight has a northern high point in June when the light of the Sun hits the Earth directly on the Tropic of Cancer at 23.5 degrees north of the equator. And the Sun has a southern high point. If you're in the southern hemisphere, the Sun is at its highest in December when the light of the Sun hits the Earth directly on the Tropic of Capricorn at 23.5 degrees south of the equator. And in between these two, The sun's light hits the equator directly at zero degrees in March when it's heading north and then in September when it's heading south. And these events set up the entry of the sun into our imaginary 30 degree segments of the ecliptic. We call the equinox when the sun's light hits the equator and it's moving north. We call that Aries. The sun is entering that part of the ecliptic. We call it Aries. And the solstice, when the sun's light hits the highest northern point, we call that its entry into Cancer, the segment of the ecliptic called Cancer. We call the equinox when the sun's light hits the equator moving south. We call that portion of the ecliptic at that moment Libra. And we call the solstice when the sun's light hits the point in the southern hemisphere. It's the highest point in the southern hemisphere. We call that Capricorn. So we've got equinox, solstice, equinox, solstice. goes around in a cycle. And these give us the cardinal signs. Aries, east, Cancer, north, Libra, west, Capricorn, south. By using the ecliptic as our stationary or fixed point of reference, astrologers and astronomers have been able to describe the movements of the planets in a non-local, non-seasonal way. It's Earth-centric way, a Gaia-centric way. We've seen how Babylonian mathematics have helped us create our calendar and a way to effectively harness the ecliptic as a fixed point. We've also seen how the use of the background star constellations help us name the segments of this fixed ecliptic. Now, how do we turn that into astrology? Let's build on this idea of the 12 30 degree segments of the ecliptic. We want a way to remember where the sun is in its ecliptic's journey. We could call it segment one and segment two and segment three, which is what we actually do on the face of a clock. We just put one, two, three, four. The one doesn't have any meaning, it's just, it's a marker. But we've been a little bit more creative and we've looked at the constellations behind the ecliptic that fall within each 30-degree segment that we want to name. And so we, through this process, we find an approximate constellation for each of those 12 segments. Now, keep in mind that each constellation that we find is a different length. Some of them are very short, and some of them are much longer, and some of them are 
in between, but they don't take up the whole 30 degrees and some of them certainly take up much more than 30 degrees. So we're not using them literally. They're just markers or names for these ecliptic segments. And these constellations form the zodiac. And the zodiac is derived from a Greek word for animals, figurines, like sculptures of animals. And when you think of each of those constellations, many of them are animals. And that's how we get the signs. They are the names for the 12, 30 degree segments of the ecliptic. But remember that the ecliptic is the only thing that's staying still there. And this is important because we've talked about how everything is moving. We are a rock moving around this exploding hydrogen mass. But not only that, the Earth itself is moving on its own rotational axis. It's wobbling. And over time, the zodiac constellations that we originally noted thousands of years ago when we first came up with this zodiac clock, those constellations have moved in relation to our perspective of the ecliptic because the Earth has moved on its rotational axis. But the ecliptic has not moved because we're still going around the sun every year. And so with this, astrology and astronomy have created a clock with the ecliptic that unites the sun and the Earth. What is astrology then? We can finally answer this question. What is astrology? It is using this clock of 12 30 degree segments of the ecliptic to measure time and set dates for future festivals, migrations, celebrations of harvests, hunting and fishing expeditions, all of these types of things. We have now conquered time and we can predict when things are going to happen based on our ecliptic clock because we watching the cycle. We know what's going on with the cycle. And how important would that have been to a tribe or a village? Because the movement of the sun and the moon have such direct impacts on our environment. For example, the sun is so telling in our seasonal experience, the moon so telling in our experience of the tides, which is super important for fishing. And that predicting these things becomes a powerful tool for us to harness or dominate our environment. And it's natural to think that all the heavenly bodies that are traveling along the ecliptic, which is this special clock that's so powerful for the sun and the moon, they must be having their effect too, because they're on that same ecliptic plane. Astrology is helping us celebrate our place in the vastness of the universe. We're finding through astrology the the rhythm of where we belong in a vast, vast, vast universe. Within answering this question, what is astrology? Now we've got this ecliptic clock. We can look at some of the ways that that has been used. For example, mundane astrology is when we take those cyclical, repeatable patterns that we can predict all the way back forever, however long you like, to all the way forward, however long you like. We know exactly where the sun is going to be on that ecliptic clock, where Mercury is going to be, where Jupiter is going to be, you name it, it's predictable. And so In mundane astrology, we can observe how various patterns of planetary placements have correlated with events on Earth. 
We can also now take astrology into what most of us probably consider the answer, what is astrology? We're really probably thinking, what is horoscopic astrology, which is comes from that word horror, the hour aura, and scopic looking at, so observing the hour of someone's birth. For horoscopic astrology, we need signs, which we've talked about. We need planets and we need where you were on planet Earth. So we've talked about signs. What about planets? In Vedic astrology, we tend to focus on the seven visible to the naked eye heavenly bodies. That is the sun, the moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And we add to that two invisible points. And these are mathematical points on the ecliptic. We call them the nodes, and they are where the orbit of the moon around the Earth intersects with the Earth's orbit around the sun. And in Vedic astrology, these are called Rahu and Ketu. So now we have the signs, we have the planets. The final element that we need for horoscopic astrology is the ascendant. Where was the person on planet Earth at this time? And this is because the Earth is the most important planet in astrology. You may not see it as a symbol on the chart, but that is because it is what the chart is built on. And we do that by knowing where the person was on planet Earth at the time of their birth. From this place, we can work out the houses which donate where the karmic experience is going to play out. So from the ascendant, it ties the person's birth chart to their location on planet Earth, and it also defines the houses, which in Vedic astrology we tend to use whole house and whole sign. There you have it. Signs, planets, and houses, which we get from the ascendant. Those are the core ingredients of horoscopic astrology. And we can also use that same format for another style of astrology, which is called prajna or horary astrology. That is at the hour astrology, which is answering a question based on the time that the question was asked. From all of that, you can see that in answering the question, what is astrology? We've got a field around electional astrology that is for predicting festivals, the best time to do something, the most auspicious time, migrations, harvests, hunting trips, all of that kind of using the ecliptic clock for that. We have mundane astrology, looking at patterns of planetary conjunctions to see their correlations with events on Earth. And we've got natal birth chart astrology and Prajna astrology of answering questions at a particular time. But we also need to acknowledge that there's many other styles of astrology that, that I haven't covered in answering this question, what is astrology? Chinese zodiac or Chinese astrology is something that comes to mind and there are others, South American and others, I'm sure. Vedic astrology is no different because it also has its own unique zodiac of the moon called the nakshatras. So instead of a sun ecliptic clock, Vedic astrology also creates a moon clock, and this was used very much in electional astrology. What is the best time for festivals, for compatibility between marriage partners? But it's also integrated into natal Vedic astrology to some degree as well. So we can see that 
while you may be familiar with astrology being about your sun sign, that is, if you follow your sun sign in popular magazines, you may think that astrology is about the sun. If you've seen your birth chart and you've been exposed to horoscopic astrology, you will see how it highlights the importance of the ascendant in the houses. And if you've been exposed to nakshatras, you can see how it emphasizes the importance of the moon. And this is why you may hear about Vedic astrology in, in realizing that the sun, the moon and the ascendant or the lagna, they can all be used to create charts. They're all considered important, as in my opinion, all of those planets are important as well. So in answering this question, what is astrology? What is Vedic astrology? We're beginning to really broaden our idea of astrology out of the popular magazines into this enormous history that astrology has with the development of humanity, the development of science, of medicine, of mathematics. From all of this, we can see that astrology is a clock that was created by dividing the ecliptic into 12 30-degree segments. Astrology uses that clock to observe phenomena. It can be used to find the best date for something. It can be used to look at the birth chart and understand the person. It can be used to answer spontaneous questions and more. Really, it helps tie a person to their place in the cycles of the earth and the planets. It gives us a place in the universe. It's predictable like clockwork. In a world of chaos, we find in astronomy, astrology, clockwork precision. And the fact that the movement of the planets is astronomically predictable creates a sense of order in the chaos of living on a rock hurtling through space. Ancient peoples, traditional cultures, expected the world to be orderly. Ancient wisdom is integrated and orderly just like the heavens and just like the Vedic wisdom that we spoke about at the beginning of the podcast that it is a structured and integrated system, it is expecting precision. So there's a perfect match there. In the West, we're not used to that now because since the scientific revolution, we've taken a step back and we're building up our knowledge again from observable, material, experimentable phenomena. So all of our branches of science and knowledge are independent and not connected. They're very detailed investigated, proven, researched, each from their own perspective. The, the fields of study, they don't expect to be related. So what we're finding in dentistry, we wouldn't expect that that has anything in relation to the way someone should decorate their house or the daily routines that are helpful for a person. We wouldn't think that they have anything to do with mathematics or that physics would have anything to do with the endocrinology of growing a child in your body. They're all separate. But in ancient worlds, we were expecting everything to fit together. So therefore, as Westerners, we don't expect astronomy to have anything valid to contribute to medicine or to psychology or to marketing or economics. In the ancient world, that was very normal, that everything would share the same fundamental phenomena. And even though science has all of its specific branches, of course, there are underlying things like the chemical elements, like atoms. There are these fundamental things that 
connect all branches of science. But as a modern Western community, we don't expect these things to be integrated. Now let's bring all of this back and answer for once and for all this question, what is Vedic astrology? We've got Vedic, an ancient body of knowledge that is integrated and systematic, that includes medicine, maths, astrology, spirituality, rituals, architecture, philosophy, and more. We've got astrology, which is observing heavenly bodies, the ecliptic, it's divided into 12 pieces. You can map the movement of heavenly bodies and predict the movements of planets, and you can put Earth on that map. Vedic astrology is the practice of observing the stars. It sets celebrations, and it's been practiced continuously and sustained through time. It has been growing and adapting as each astrologer implements the practice of his teacher and incorporates his own observations. Astrology has evolved over thousands of years in many human tribes and cultures. In the West, astrology was outlawed at various times and it's had to be very tenacious to survive, if at all. At this point in time in the West, astrology is not seen as a serious study. It's not taught in universities, even though it requires a lot of mathematics, a lot of astronomy. In ancient times, it was the pinnacle of higher education, but now it's not integrated into uh, the mainstream higher education, so it's lost its continual lineage. But in India, the origins of Vedic astrology, this is not the case. Astrology has managed to survive, which is not to say that India hasn't been through its own great times of war and conflict and strife. But because astrology was an essential part of the Vedas, not having astrology would be like cutting off your arm or your leg. It's just an integrated part of a body of knowledge. It has been an oral tradition that was encoded in phrases, short phrases that had lots of information. It's been continuously practiced with its roots in these sutras, these encoded phrases. And these sutras were passed down from teacher to student, teacher to student, until today. At some points in history, those oral traditions have been written down. And so we have some books that capture these encoded phrases. Vedic astrology can claim both magical, mythical roots right back to its creation stories, just like indigenous stories. I'm lucky to have grown up in Australia where we have an indigenous population who's very existence for those peoples is tied to their creation stories, to the land, to the mythology of the creation of that land and the creation of their beings. That's all continuous passing of stories. And this is the same with Vedic astrology. It gets to share these, its links back to these creation roots at the same time that that is a continuous lineage. The location of India is right in the middle of that silk trading route linking Far East Asia with Europe and the cross-pollination that has happened from India to China to Japan and further afield and equally from India through to the Middle East and Europe and then 
of course, coming both ways through Europeans and Middle Eastern influences into India and Japanese and Chinese influences into India and back and forth over hundreds and hundreds of years. So Vedic astrology is something that can claim both sacred creation, mythology roots and modern or interacting with many cultures as part of a trading route over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So if you're a Western astrologer, you're going to see many concepts that you're very familiar with in Vedic astrology, and you're going to see many that are unique. It's a mixing pot. This richness, what a gift it is for us to have a continuously practiced form of astrology from ancient times through to now that has been integrated and protected by its inclusion in the body of Vedic knowledge that you and I can access today and that I hope over the coming episodes of the Vedic Astrology Podcast we'll get to explore and be enchanted by the richness of Vedic astrology. I have really enjoyed attempting to answer this question with you today. What is Vedic astrology? I hope I have enriched your understanding of Vedic astrology and that you will join me next time when I answer the second unanswerable but cannot be ignored question, how does astrology work? So until then, I wish you well with all of your endeavors in astrology and I will see you again soon on the Vedic Astrology Podcast. Thanks for being with me.